Oh, love that scene, love that movie. Okay, um, spoiler alert. Even though you've probably guessed it, the team from Hickory moves on to prepare for the game. And this is a true story, by the way, and true to the story upon which the movie is based. Little Hickory beats Big South Bend Central by two points on a last second shot by an unlikely hero. Great story, great movie. In fact, Hoosiers was honored as the greatest sports story of all time or movie by USA Today magazine some years ago. Friends, we love it when the little school beats the big school. I mean, North Polk would love nothing better than to beat Ames, right? You know that's true. Little Gilbert would love to beat, and we love it when that, we love it when the little guy beats the big guy. We Iowans would have loved to have seen little Sean Johnson in her prime going up against big Shaquille O'Neal and beating him in a game of one-on-one, -on -one. not only in basketball, but also on the balance beam. I don't know about you, but I can't get past that picture of Shaquille on a balance beam. David and Goliath. Is not the essence of this story that the little guy beats the big guy, that a mere boy takes down a great big giant, surely that's part of this story, and a wonderful part of this story, by the way. But there is a bigger story at work here that we must not miss today. Remember, this story, like all the stories of the Bible, is first and foremost and finally about God. Listen to that again. This story like all the stories of the Bible, is first and foremost and finally about this is God's story. So let's not miss God in the story. Now, it seems like God shows up late to this story. He certainly isn't much on the mind of Goliath as the giant struts and prances his way into the middle of the valley. Goliath is full of himself and fully unaware of the God of Israel. Goliath is a champion. He's the greatest, toughest, meanest warrior in the Philistine army. He is absolutely confident that he and his people will win and win convincingly the contest he proposes, mano a mano, man against man in hand-to-hand -hand combat, the Philistine champion against the Israelite champion, to the death, winner take all. The giant shouts, if your man prevails and kills me, we will be your slaves. But if I prevail, and in the mind of Goliath, he's thinking not if, but when, when I prevail, when I kill your man, then you will be our slaves. Confident. Got it? Self-assured. Certain of the outcome. No doubt in his mind, that's Goliath of Gath. And upon what does his confidence rest? Well, all you got to do is look to the story. <laughs> He's nine feet tall. 
And given the weight of the armor he so easily carries, he is a muscle-bound, seasoned warrior. King Saul tells us that Goliath had been a warrior since his youth. He'd been groomed and trained, his fighting skills honed to precision for just such a moment as this. He's tasted blood before many, many times. He has claimed victory every time he stepped into the ring of combat. This is not Goliath's first rodeo. And his armor. I mean, don't forget his armor. A helmet of bronze. A coat made of bronze that weighs, ready for this, 126 pounds. And shin guards made of bronze. A huge bronze sword is sheathed to his side. He carries a javelin of bronze in one hand and a spear of bronze in the other. The tip of that spear alone weighs 15 pounds. Oh, and another man, his shield bearer, Walks ahead of him. Get that? Another man, his shield bearer, walks ahead of him. So much for mano a mano, by the way. The bully stacks the deck. But then most bullies do. Goliath feels invincible. He is a giant of a man with gigantic weapons, the best weapons available on the face of the planet at the time. Goliath trusts in the power of the sword. Get that into your head. Goliath trusts in the power of the sword. No need for God in the worldview of Goliath and the Philistines. Nor, I'd submit to you, is God much on the minds of Saul and the armies of Israel. Apparently, they share Goliath's estimate of the situation. The first time the giant steps into the valley and issues his defiant challenge, the text says, quote, they were terrified and lost all hope. One glimpse of the giant and his army and the armies of Israel find their spines melting like butter in the hot sun. And imagine it. Day after day after day after day for 40 days, Goliath steps into the valley, thrusts his spear-laden arms into the air and shouts, I defy the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let us fight it out together. Give me a man, you cowards. And he stands there with a sneer on his face, as the mighty armies of Israel shrink back in fear and dismay. The armies of Israel are consumed by fear. They cannot see beyond the giant in his armor to the God of their fathers. Can't see beyond Goliath to the God who had led them to victory after victory after victory after victory in the past. The God who had promised them that he would never let them down. The God who had promised them that he would never let them go. Fear blinds them to the presence of the living God in their midst. Got it? Enter David. Now, an unlikely hero is David. No one's first pick for hero of the day, savior of the nation status. He is the youngest of eight sons. 
His father, Jesse, is a common, ordinary farmer from Bethlehem. As the youngest, David is assigned to care for the family's sheepherd, a menial task, the least important task. After all, he, he, he's just a boy. Barely a teenager would be a pretty good guest. Just a boy, still in junior high and preparing to fight the battle against acne. Just a boy. His, his brothers see it that way and want him to go home. Just a boy. King Saul sees it that way and is unimpressed. Just a boy. Goliath sees it that way and is insulted. He's just a boy. But I wonder... Don't you wonder, what, what does God see? God who looks on the heart, what does God see? Well, according to the story, David was sent by his father to bring bread for his brothers, good goat cheese for their commander, and then to bring home news of the brothers' welfare. Just a boy and an errand boy at that. Well, as David arrives in camp, Goliath comes prancing down the hill, steps into the middle of the valley of Elah, raises his spear and javelin, and issues his challenge once more. I defy the troops of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let's fight it out together. Give me a man. And David is stunned. This this isn't at all what he had expected. He cannot believe what he sees. Panic and fear all around him, readily seen on the faces of the mighty armies of Israel. No one steps forward to accept the challenge of Goliath, not even King Saul, who, by the way, is supposed to be Israel's greatest warrior. A giant among his own men who stands, says the text, a head taller than all the rest. Saul is supposed to be Israel's champion. Goliath knows exactly who this challenge is meant for. But Saul... Saul's hiding in his tent, commiserating with his commanders. No one, not even David's brave older brothers, stands up to defend the honor of Israel and the honor of Israel's God. David turns to a soldier standing near him and wonders, wonders aloud, who is this uncircumcised pagan Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David approaches the scene with a different worldview than the rest. While the others see an invincible warrior defying the armies of Israel, David sees an ungodly Philistine with the audacity to hurl insults at the armies of the living God. While others... See an impossible situation, an unbeatable foe, and an unwinnable contest. David trusts that with God in his corner, the odds have tipped overwhelmingly in his favor. In David's mind, the phrase against all odds applies not to him, but to the Philistine. Is there no champion in Israel, David wonders. And again, he wonders it out loud to the consternation of his older brother, who considers just a boy, presumptuous and braggadocious, writes, my preacher brother, I have one of those, there's just the two of us, and he too is a preacher, and he's my younger brother, 
He wrote this. My, my younger brother wrote these words. Big brother is right. I never tire of quoting those words to him. <laughs> but on this story, he wrote, big brother is right. David is presumptuous. And we find it refreshing and appealing. As yet, no one has told David that size and strength is more important than heart. No one has told him that you can't buck the odds. No one has given him reason to doubt the power of faith in the living God. No one has told him that there are mountains too big and steep and dangerous to climb. Lions or bears too powerful to subdue and kill. Men too intimidating and powerful to take on. Only a presumptuous boy would dare ask a troop of hardened soldiers, what shall be done to the man who kills this Philistine? Only a presumptuous boy would have the unmitigated gall to refer to a veteran and seasoned warrior as this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defy the armies of the living God. Only a presumptuous boy would have the brass to stand before his king and say, let no man's heart fail. Don't give up hope, Saul, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Only a presumptuous boy would have the audacity to suppose that he had the right and the responsibility to defend the honor of his living God. Thankfully, writes my little brother, this boy is not yet a man. We need more presumptuous boys and girls and men and women. From the point of view of the soldiers and the king, Goliath is an invincible, fearsome giant who is insulting the armies of Israel. David sees a godless Philistine who has the audacity to defy the armies of the living God. Thank God for little boys and little brothers. So, the tension in the story mounts. David presents himself before the king, and David volunteers to answer the giant's challenge. But, but you are just a boy trained to tend sheep, says Saul. Goliath is a well-armed soldier trained from his youth to make war. In other words, little boy, you don't stand a chance. But get this. David doesn't plan to stand on chance. David will stand on his faith in the living God. He says to Saul, The Lord who delivered me from the teeth of the lion and the claws of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And at a loss for words, Saul finally responds, Go, and the Lord be with you. That's all. Just go. And the Lord be with you, not knowing what he's really saying. And then Saul, Saul offers David the king's own armor. And I submit to you that we are meant to laugh, or at the very least smile at the sight of a 12 or 13-year-old boy, small in stature, struggling to walk, weighted down by a grown man's armor and weapons. There's comedic relief in this story. David promptly discards all of the king's armor in favor of five smooth stones, his shepherd's staff, and a sling in his hand. Stones, staff, sling. The action rises. Just a boy 
David steps into the valley of Elah to do battle with the man, the giant, Goliath of Gath. The two contestants face off. Each issues a final challenge with spear in one hand, javelin raised high in the other. Goliath declares that he will feed David's dead body to the vultures and the wild beasts. <laughs> but David, uh, David makes the bigger claim. He comes to demonstrate in no uncertain terms that there is an extraordinary and living God in Israel and all the earth will soon know that this God determines the outcomes of battles not by sword or spear but the living God determines the outcome of battles says David everyone gathered here will learn that God doesn't save by means of sword or spear. Do not miss that. Hang on to that. It will come again at the end of the story. God doesn't save by means of sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moves in for the kill, David loads his sling with one smooth stone swings it round and round and round and round as it gathers speed, probably 120 miles an hour by the time he lets it fly, striking Goliath in the forehead and dropping the menacing warrior face down on the ground. Face down on the ground. Those are the words in the story. It is a picture of surrender and capitulation. The clash between worldviews is over. The Philistine, with his trust in the sword, lies prostrate on the ground in submission before David and his trust in the living God. David claims the victory, but it is the living God who wins the battle because the battle is the Lord's great story. I mean, I love this story as far as it goes. David's final acts in this story, and there are two, David's final acts are pregnant with meaning, and we don't often talk about them. Let's stay with the story now. The story is not over. Let's stay with the story. David picks up Goliath's sword, picks up the sword, and severs the giant's head. Goliath, a man who believed in the sword and lived by the sword, thus dies by his own sword. And we remember, at least I think we should remember, the words of Jesus on the night of his betrayal and arrest when one of our Lord's followers drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. We recall how Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Apparently, in the mind of Jesus... The sword belongs in its sheath. And we, we wonder at the meaning of this, or again, at least I think we should. Does it mean that we should render ourselves defenseless by laying down all our weapons? There are those who say this is the meaning of David's story, and this is the meaning of Jesus' words. But I'm not 
so sure. Jesus did not say get rid of your sword. He said put your sword back in its place. It seems there, there may be a place for the sword, although you'll get an argument from people on that as well. And in the mind of Jesus, that place is normally and preferably where? In its sheath. Put it back in its place. However, it seems to me that in this evil world, it remains necessary for governments, local and national, to take up the sword in defense of the innocent and the oppressed. I could be wrong, but it seems that way to me. We are not asked to accept without defense the violence and brutality of criminals, be they persons or nations or terrorist organizations. And yet, in David's story, there does seem to be another word from God that perhaps we ought not miss. A word of caution reminding us that God does not take bloodshed and killing lightly, even when it is carried out in defense of the innocent against the godless. Here it comes. At the end of this story, David not only picks up the sword of Goliath in order to kill him, to chop off his head, but David takes the Philistines' weapons, all of his weapons, and he puts them, quote, in his own tent, unquote. The one who just declared God doesn't save by means of sword or spear takes possession of both and brings them into his own tent for later use. What are we to, what are we to do with this part of the story? Ignore it, don't talk about it, as if it means nothing. But perhaps to ignore it is to miss an important lesson God would have us see. So, let's fast forward to the end of David's life. David would go down in history as Israel's greatest king. The mighty warrior king who vanquished all of Israel's enemies, brought peace and prosperity to the kingdom. Yet... As David's life and reign draws to a close, his greatest dream is as yet unrealized. David had hoped to leave as his legacy a great and magnificent temple built to the glory of God in the city of Jerusalem. He made all the plans. He raised all of the resources to accomplish this great goal, his most important goal. Look with me now to a part of David's final speech delivered to the whole house of Israel shortly before his death. Here it is. David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. The officers over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the brave warriors. He's got all the big guns in front of him. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. 
But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name. You're not to build my temple because you are a warrior and have shed blood. You see it? Friends, it's as if God said, David, my beloved son and faithful servant, I know how much you long to give me and the people one last and precious gift. I know how much you long to build a temple to my glory, a place for my people to gather and worship my name. But my son, you are not qualified, for you are a warrior, and there is blood on your hands. And while most of it may be the blood of evil men, it is blood. Nonetheless, what do we do with that? I'm going to trust you to make of this what you will. There's maybe you talk about it with friends and families. But, and as you listen to the Spirit of God speak to you, but let me tell you what I make of this. I could be right. I could be wrong. I believe it is one more place in the Old Testament where the Spirit is pointing ahead to the, the arrival of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, and a better way than the way of violence and bloodshed. And I believe it is God's way of saying that even when the sword is necessary to defend the defenseless, to protect the innocent, to free the oppressed, it is still and always less than God's ideal. The shedding of human blood by another is an affront to God, even when it is justified in every sense of that word. Every person is created in the image of God, is therefore of great value to God, and the shedding of their blood should never, ever be taken lightly. Friends, on those rare occasions when war may be the lesser of bad choices, it should always be seen as a sad and terrible moment in the life of any nation, any leader, any culture. Nations and their leaders should only go to war on their knees in a spirit of confession before God for their failure at making peace. And they should do so most openly and most publicly. In an essay I read recently, author James Scopp, a retired English literature professor from Dort College up in northwest Iowa, tells the story of America's entry into World War I, led by a very reluctant President Woodrow Wilson. I'll let Professor Scopp tell the story. This is what he writes. But staying out became impossible when German U-boats sunk American shipping. The Lusitania wasn't the only vessel to go down with its innocent passengers. And when intelligence discovered Germany was attempting to enlist Mexico's help in defeating the Allied nations, the peacemaker President Wilson understood that his America was going to have to go to war. Woodrow Wilson was the last president to write his own speeches. He didn't have a cadre of writers around to make his rhythms dance and his metaphors glow. Any lyrical sense to his words came from his own soul. On April 7, 1917, April 1, 1917, the scholar president pulled an all-nighter on a speech he would deliver the next evening to a joint session of Congress. 
One of the most significant speeches in American history, the speech that would carry a single line to the practice of American foreign policy for generations to come, this line, the world must be made safe for democracy, the challenges to all mankind, he said. Then Wilson said this, each nation must decide for itself how it will meet it. The choice we make for ourselves must be made with a moderation of counsel and temperateness of judgment befitting our character and our motives as a nation. We must put excited feeling away. Our motive will not be revenge or the victorious assertion of the physical might of the nation, but only the vindication of right, of human right, of which we are only a single champion. Oh, so reluctantly a peacemaker was going to war. And then said the president, with a profound sense of the solemn and even tragical character of the step I am taking and of the grave responsibilities which it involves, but in unhesitating obedience to what I deem my constitutional duty, I advise that the Congress declare the recent courses of the imperial German government be in fact nothing less than war against the government of the United States. And when he finished, Congress got to his feet immediately and saluted him with thunderous ovations. Wilson was dumbfounded at that. My message today, he told an aide later, my message today was a message of death for our young men. How strange it seems to applaud that. When he finished that speech, President Woodrow Wilson, having declared America at war with Germany, laid his head on the cabinet in front of him and wept. That seems about right to me. And God's prophet Isaiah, may we along, may we along, along with, with all people, and we long for the day when the swords of all nations will be beaten into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks for God's sake. And yes, for the sake of the warriors who always stand in our defense. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Stand with me for prayer, would you? At the end of the day, you are God. The battle, every battle is yours. May we be reminded of the one who, who our book declares is you in the flesh. Our book declares is everything you would be were you to work, walk this earth as a man that this one, our Jesus, was a man of peace who calls us to be such, who said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. May we be so in your sight and in the midst of this world as followers of this Jesus, peacemakers. Amen. Amen.